Next Chapter Podcasts. No, this is not a song about a convenience store in Pennsylvania. But it is called Wawa. Not Wawa, like Wawa, but Wawa. And it's by George Harrison of his 1970 album, All Things Must Pass. It's a perfect album. It's also number 433 out of 500 on the Spotify Ridge, the 500 with me, the King Kadoogle. What's up, you Kadoogly Spooglies? Thanks again for joining me. We're going from 500 down to one, from Rolling Stone Magazine's list of best albums. All right. Usually, I would read this long thing about the artist to catch you up on what's going on. But because we have such a, I mean, this album just destroyed me. I've realized that why I'm doing this is because when I listen to certain songs and certain albums, that is when I'm with Angelo. Like literally five minutes before, before I started recording this, I was just torn apart just listening to this album and how powerful it is. And it's like, that's when I feel my friend that's gone. And it's beautiful. So I mean this from the bottom of my heart. Thank you to every single one of you guys for joining this journey. And I hope you're getting the same experiences that I am because we don't get like an album like this for the first time in our life. There's people that have listened to this and are probably jealous of us that we get George Harrison, All Things Must Pass, all the way through from start to finish. That's that's so dope. So listen, like I could read this long thing about George Harrison, but you know everything about this guy, okay? He was a Beatle, the biggest band in the world from like 63 to 70. And he was like writing songs, you know, over time, but the Beatles, like John and Paul, were like pushing him down and pushing him down. And so he sat in the cut and he didn't do shit, but he kept writing songs. And then finally, after the Let It Be sessions, when, when shit got all kinds of kachunked, because he couldn't take working with these guys and they couldn't take working with him and it was falling apart, the band broke up and then he got together, he meaning George, got together with Phil Spector bought a a briar out in the middle of uh, like castle land where they shoot Game of Thrones in England and recorded this album using Phil Spector's wall of sound and there were incredible musicians on it like Belly and Billy Preston, Eric Clapton, Bob Dylan and the band helped influence. There's just so much cool shit in this and it's an incredible album. Slide guitar, everything you're going to need. Not going any further. It's one of the best albums. Also, I am not one to protest at all about the placement of any albums on this Rolling Stones list. That's not my job. I am the voice. I am the conduit that gets all of you to listen to it, you know? I am the scratchy fucking Harvey Firestein sounding voice that you get to enjoy every week that guides you through this. But the fact that all things must pass is in the top 400 is fucking stupid. You're telling me the Arctic Monkeys had a better album than George Harrison unloading one of the most incredibly godly albums of all time. Forget that he's a Beatle because there's no way a Beatle should be in the fucking top 400. This is a God-gifted movement of an album. 
So what if there's nine versions of Isn't It a Pity? The album's special. The guy looks like a goddamn garden gnome on the cover, and that's the point. The record label knew the album was so goddamn good, they let him dress up like the Keebler elf on the cover, and they were like, okay, George Harris Katoogly, you can have your little witch's hat and sit on the briar, but just please put out your symphony. And you know what he said? He said, Katoogly. And my guest today knew him, was there for all of this. It's Peter Asher. If you don't know who Peter Asher is, he was a child star of radio, television, screen. His sister Jane dated Paul McCartney at the beginning and at the height of Beatlemania. And even Paul lived with Asher's family during that time. And then Peter was in the 60s duo Peter and Gordon, where they were like the British version of the Everly Brothers. They released all these songs like World Without Love. It was a big hit. This dude became the head of A&R at the Beatles record label, Apple Records. He was the dude that discovered James Taylor. He produced Linda Ronstadt. This dude is a legend. He even wrote a book called The Beatles From A to Z, An Alphabetical Mystery Tour. And he is our guest today, and I couldn't be happier. Rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe to The 500 and listen free on Spotify or anywhere you get your pods. Follow me at Josh Adam Myers on all social media. Email the podcast at 500podcast at gmail.com. And for all things 500, go to our website, the500podcast.com. Well, guys, let's get tet. Let's get tet. Well, get tet. Here we go. Ho with number 433 Out of 500 With all things must pass By George Harrison Harrison Sometimes you have a guest Like Peter Asher Sometimes you have Peter Asher there you, I feel like you're cracking a little smile. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm polite. I, you're so sweet. Um, We're doing our best to be polite. Before before I go any further, it's just such an honor to have you here uh, in my incredible studio. Thank you in, very much. Yes, in the, the beautiful Hollywood the peak hills. of luxury. Yes. This is, I mean, you walking through my courtyard might have been the funniest thing I've ever seen. Well, it's, it's the <laughs> finest studio I've ever seen in my life. Um. But it's just such a it's just such an honor because uh, I know your history mm-hmm. and uh, because this is such a full album, I just want to dive right into it. So I want you to tell me when did you first meet George Harrison? Uh, well, and- I'm not very good at dates, but I imagine it would have been uh, around end of '63, I suppose. I mean, I first met the Beatles when they first came down to London, whenever that was. You know, I, in other words, I never knew them in Liverpool. One of the weirdest things about, you know, when I became part of the so-called British invasion and was over here myself, uh, everyone assumed that I, we were from Liverpool. And even when we convinced them we weren't from Liverpool, they assumed we knew Liverpool really well. It's like you well. got that Liverpool vibe, bro. <laughs> I, I don't. I, think I, I definitely don't. I don't have the accent. I don't have the vibe. And, and they'd go, oh, but, you know, isn't Liverpool, what is Liverpool like? And I was going, we've never been there. They went, that's impossible. I went, no. Everyone I know in Liverpool, the minute they can afford a train ticket, they're in London. <laughs> <laughs> so nobody in their right mind went there on purpose. <laughs> so, and the Beatles, of course, got out of there as soon as they could. So, so what was now? Your, it's become legendary. But, but, but what was so? What, what was your first experience? Wait, so it's just them j- uh, just jamming, and you're seeing the band develop, or at that point no. they're already really no. Uh, they they 
you know, the, I met them shortly after my sister met them, and she met them because she was invited to go and see their first London gig. Um, you know, I guess Love Me Do was out, the first single, and they, you know, Beatlemania was setting in, at least in the UK. Of course, the US didn't catch it for a year or so. And uh, so uh, she was invited by a magazine called The Radio Times, uh, which is kind of like TV Guide, only, you know, we didn't really need a TV Guide because we only had one channel. And and the BBC, and so anyway, she was invited to to go and see them and write a piece about the about the Beatles because her opinion about music was practiced. And she was a a very well known actress, still is, and and she was always was kind of a guest celebrity review, and that's how she met them, and 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 so on. And then she and Paul started going out together. So so I met them all, and and eventually, as you probably know, Paul ended up living in. In our house, yeah, a couple of years. And was he was so, he a good was he a good flatmate? Did he yes, did he like I, drink your milk ever? I, I did he, ask that all the did time. Did he buy I, paper towels? That's what I would did. Paul, sorry, I didn't mean to use the less of the paper. Did paper towels <laughs> exist in 1968? I don't, I don't think they did. I, was I don't think I don't think they did. I think we have to actually use real towels and wash yeah, them. Like, Paul, can you start chipping in on the on the cable bill? Can you start? I don't know why we have Cinemax. We definitely didn't have cable. I can tell you <laughs> that know. none of the things you mentioned. You, you're forgetting how. How old we all are. I'm in an alternate world, bro. Exactly. But, all right, but let's no get it. No paper towels, no so, cable, but, but, for so, sure. but your sister, so, so Paul's living with, with yes. your family. Yes. Um, but let's be specific to, to George. Like, what, what was your first well, thoughts on George when I was you getting there. Oh, you, you asked oh, me when I first geez, met George. Oh, it's oh, quite all right. No, no, no. Stop, stop screaming at me. It's your job. <laughs> um, uh, so I, I, soon I met all the Beatles. And I think, first time I met them, I th- seem to recall it was in a pub somewhere. But I'm not quite sure why or when. But I do remember that they were all there with wives and girlfriends at the time, which would have been Maureen and Cynthia, um, and so on. And, uh, yeah, I, I distinctly remember being in a pub and all drinking pints of beer, but I can't remember where or exactly why it ended up being on that occasion. But I guess Paul had invited me to come with him or whatever, and that, I think that's the first time I met them all. And George, like, what were your first thoughts on him meeting him for the first time? Well, you know, those Beatle descriptions, like most cliches, they're they're pretty much right on. He was really? the, he, he was, was the quiet, he was the quiet one. one, yeah. <laughs> so, so I didn't have a distinct impression of him. John was, you know, more more present in the conversation, and 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 John was somebody who tended to be a bit argumentative, and and uh, George was someone who tended not to say a whole lot, and Ringo tended to be funny. So the cl- <laughs> the cliches were were correct. Um, so I don't I don't have you know I. The thing is, I you know I never knew George particularly well. I knew him and liked him, and obviously we worked together when I was head of A and R at Apple. You know, we we were in a lot of meetings together and did stuff together. But he was, um, you know, which I regret because I liked him very much. But we, I can never, I certainly wouldn't pretend that he and, he and I were were close friends. Of course, but you, you know, whereas other friends of mine, people like Eric Idle, who is one of my best friends, was best friends with George. So it, yeah. there was a lot of connections there. But did George and I actually hang out talking about the meaning of life? No. So so right, so the so the so the Beatles of course become the Beatles, the biggest band in the world, and and then there's the breakup. So do you remember what kind of like what was going on in your life when All Things Must Pass came out? So it came out, it was released November 27, 1970. Uh, it's 433 out of 500, and it was produced by George Harrison. Do you remember kind of what was going on? I mean, were you still connected to Apple at that time? No. So, you know, it's just, just, and I don't know, as I say, the actual dates, but certainly, you know, when Alan Klein moved into Apple, or it became clear that he was going to, yeah. when Alan Klein won the argument that Paul lost, you know, because John got 
George and Ringo on his side, that they should bring in this guy, Alan Klein. Paul was vigorously opposed. I was on Paul's side. I knew about Alan Klein from friends in New York. He was essentially a crook. And, and, uh, you know, and, and a skilled crook, you know, and, and, but, but um, not somebody I'd want in charge of my record label or my band. And Paul felt very strongly that way. So once I knew Alan was coming in, I wrote a letter of resignation to Apple yeah. and, and got out of there and took James with me. I bet my career on his, I became James's manager. In, I was already producing his records. Yeah. We'd made that one album, the James Taylor album for Apple. So I moved to Los Angeles and... Um, Immediately started stripping, right? Because that's what we have to do when... Okay, never mind. That's quite right. No, no. <laughs> I will indulge these moments. Um, but, Thank you. Um, but, yeah, I mean, and I did see George since then. I remember distinctly hanging out with George when he had the house on Blue Jay Way. I don't remember what era that particular oh my, was. There, but I remember being... Wow. I was in that house. Yeah. And I remember going with George to a party at one of the monkeys' house. Which I read, actually I read another account of this particular party oh, in somebody's that. book, um, <laughs> where everybody was naked. Um, We've all been to that party and, at the monkey's uh, house. <laughs> and I remember George. We decided not to get naked. It was George and myself and a couple other people. I can't remember who. And we ended up. Stephen Stills was there playing guitar brilliantly, naked, but brilliant guitar playing. Um, I'm a huge Stephen fan, and. Uh, that's the, it's a rather hazy memory for, yeah, but for whatever reason. What I was these told were, these, what, these were the seventies. What, Los what I was told uh, was that Davy Jones uh, saw his penis and went, "Oh, when I see his penis, do, 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 do. but I'm a believer." I had to. Of course, I, I'm of course so sorry. It's a compulsion. All right, but let's let's take it to this. I all right. So for me, as as a huge huge Beatles fan, you know, it, it's so funny because growing up, I always thought John Lennon was my favorite Beatle. He was like, he's the coolest guy. He's the guy that wrote Happiness is a Warm Gun and all of these incredible <clears throat> songs. And as I've gotten older, yeah, uh, I've just fallen so in love with George Harrison. Yeah, no, he's, he's brilliant. I mean, that's the thing about the Beatles is that you can look at each of them and realize how singularly important are, they are on their own. Yes. Um, so in each case, you know, the, one of the reasons the Beatles were so colossally important and remain so to this day is that it is like a perfect storm where these four very different people yeah uh, musically different emotionally different you know, existentially tem different temperamentally like, different yeah and, and yet they fit it together perfectly it's as if you know in the same way to go to take a completely opposite extreme the way they cast the spice girls you know when it said okay we're gonna have the posh one oh, yeah we're gonna have this one we're gonna have the the funny one what were the other ones called i can't even remember now there the was, baby there one, was yeah. baby one, uh, baby spice, posh spice. Anyway, the heroin but, addict. <laughs> but it's as if you know, some some supreme being had decided to yeah. cast the perfect band. You know, we'll have these four people with these four sets of characteristics, these four different kinds of looks, and these four different musical talents, and put them all together and create the greatest band of all time. Oh, and that's what happened. I yeah. had we got into an argument. I was doing another episode, and somebody said that the Beatles were a boy band, and I, I just was like, "There's no, this is like a boy bands are formulaic. Like these, like yeah. you have these yeah. guys that are like, I'm gonna get the cute one and the, this one. This was just the well, universe blessing. It was a boy band created by the universe, of course, rather, rather it, than by created it, by no. And that's when I said they were a band. Band of boys more than they were a boy band. Who was the fat guy who who, who went to prison? Who created? Uh, Ron. No, I was gonna say Ron Perlman, but it's no, Lou, no, Lou no, Perlman. No. It's Lou, Lou Perlman. Perlman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, that's a Ron, Ron Perlman's story. Hellboy. 
Yeah, uh, same he, thing. I mean, that's, <laughs> same moniker. Uh, yeah, though that was that was a terrible story, and and that's boy band this boy band phenomenon at its worst. At its know? worst, but. And, and uh, luckily, that was not in any way what the Beatles were. At all. And, and they, f- they created themselves, of course. They found each other. For sure. You know, you can see the hand of the fate in, in the fact that that happened. Yeah. But they, they found each other and met each other and knew, you know, this, this is the right guy. They all talk about that. You know, when John and Paul first met, you know, when they first heard, played with George, and finally when Ringo first, they changed drummers and Ringo sat in, they all kind of went, now we're ready. You know, there was yeah. this feeling of like the four pieces of the jigsaw just clicked together and we're off. Oh, that's and, so great. And that's what happened. And they, they've talked about that feeling, you know, and and they had no, there was no question in their minds that the minute those four people first got in the room and played together, it was like, here we go. So, but but then when when it comes to the the ending of the Beatles, I mean, how how connected were you, were you with them as the the Beatles were starting to go their separate ways, having these arguments? You um, know? Uh, yeah, I mean, reasonably so, because obviously during that period when I was at Apple and they were there all the time, yeah. there were massive rows going on because that was the time that, that I mean, they, they always had rows. Bands all have rows. You, any band, you should assume they basically kind of hate each Every, other. Yeah, they, and it's, you spend that much time together they, in a They found a way to live together. You either find a way to make it work. You know, Mick and Keith, in some senses, they no doubt still hate each other, but but at the same time, they've totally negotiated, found discovered by experience how they work together best did you and they know they need each other did and so the, that was that worked you know over overcame most of the trivial arguments that they would have until this whole alan klein business you know did, around which the, the all the the minor things coalesced and that became the big argument sure hey this is dewey halpas host of peer pleasure on the sound talent media podcast network Join me each week as I explore another long-form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. From Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal the Man, to Fat Mike from NoFX, and Ian MacKay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fallout Boy to Slayer, Peer Pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media. Hi, this is Paul Phelps. And this is Monica Strutt. And we're from the Daily Music Business Podcast. We're joined by a number of other really great hosts in creating daily content with great advice for independent musicians just like you. That's right. We put out episodes daily on all topics from music marketing to branding, advice on signing with a manager and label and anything else you need to up-level the business side of your music career. We've got it covered. Subscribe to the Daily Music Business Podcast today on your favorite podcast catcher. Subscribe today to the Daily Music Business Podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Did you start seeing like these these signs of greatness from George? Like, and, and was he being pushed around or pushed down by by Paul and John? Because this is these are all songs off of All Things Must Pass that he was writing and getting together throughout yeah. his, especially well, he, the Let It Be sessions. He felt that way. Certainly, I mean, it, there was a, there was a sense in which it was how many songs George could have on an album felt rationed. There's no question. Yeah. But on the other hand, you could look at it, the fact that without that, would George have got as brilliant as he did? No, I, I, mean, I, I, I think I, his desperate ambition to show them, I'll show them in the literal sense, you know, you know, screw them, I'll show them I can write great songs. And the only way to do that is to bloody write them. Yeah. And, and he did. I mean, to be the first Beatle to, to drop a solo record, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's, it's just, 
And I've listened to a, a lot of the Beatles solo records, and I have to tell you, uh, and out of all the song, the albums I've done on this list so far, I've never felt a record that is so full of love. It's like you can't listen to this and not have a very grateful experience. I was listening yeah. to uh, Isn't It a Pity, version two, the acoustic yeah. one last night, and I started weeping. It was like I just felt... Uh, you know, friends of mine that that love music that have passed away just in the room with me while I was listening to it, and it was, it, it's just you know every artist puts their heart into the music, but on this album, not only do you feel it, but you see it, and and you can know, uh, you know, you feel like you know a part of George as you listen to it. It's a brilliant, brilliant. I agree. Record. No, it's it's an amazing record. I mean, I remember the, it was one of those records where the first time you hear it, yes, however much you already admired George, you realized it was an underestimate. Yeah, even if you realized already his skill as a guitar player, his excellence as a writer and, and, and singing and all that stuff. And his singing got better, his range increased, everything improved, you know, and, and maybe that's, some of that was a desperate effort to, to, to gain equality in what he saw as an unequal relationship. Sure. But, but it worked. It did work. I got this quote before we dive into the first song. I saw the uh, critic say this. A major talent unleashed, one who'd been hidden in plain sight for all those years. And it's so true. It's like you see you see George starting to shine towards the end of the Beatles uh, catalog, but nothing. Like, I'll put any of these songs on this record up there with Here Comes the Sun or something. Yeah. But, but let's dive into the record. Okay, so it opens with I'd Have You Anytime. So... In 1968, after completing work on the Beatles' White Album, George came to America for a couple months, and while here, he co-wrote this song of love with Bob Dylan, who came up with him in the chorus, and Eric Clapton on lead guitar. Uh, Peter, play the intro. Kind of a slow opening for such a powerful record. And, and my thoughts on this, huh. maybe I'm wrong, Peter. But maybe he didn't want to, maybe he's, he didn't want to like rush us into some of the rock songs. He wanted to ease us into his world like an old man getting into a bath, you know? And not even an old man getting into a bath, a man of any age getting into a yeah. bath. I slipped getting into the bath a couple weeks ago and got a concussion on that soap thing that's on the wall. So I love this song. Uh, I've never associated it with bathtubs before, but, you but it, know it's, it's a way of looking at things. Um, yeah, I mean, well, you're looking, don't forget, there's the, making the album and sequencing the album are usually two very different operations. I mean, occasionally you end up in the studio making a track and go, oh, this would be great to open side two or something, which yeah. of course is an antiquated concept. But, but generally, you're just making this each song as good as you can be, as good as it can be. And the sequencing thing tends to happen at the, at the end, you know, when you pretty much got everything done and mixed, then you actually, you know, sometimes put strips of paper up on a whiteboard in order and just try all the different sequences yeah. and listen to them, you know. Um, so I don't know why they chose to put that first. You may be right, but it's not, that wouldn't be why the song exists, but it, it could be why it ended up in first place because, as I say, sequencing back then was a very important operation. Now it's absolutely meaningless. Oh, but, but, nobody but, writes albums anymore. Now what they do is they just write mm -hmm. singles and with iTunes and yeah, Spotify. Yeah, which is fine, which is fine. Which is fine, yeah. But uh, if, if you, and if you do write an album, you're welcome to, but of course people will write their own, is my point. You know? Sure. You, even if you said, here's the order of the songs, they'd go, no, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, oh, and now, of course, you've got you infinity of time. Oh, trust me, I've, there's so but much. But you've also got, you know, if you wanted only three minutes, put out a great three minutes, 
minutes, you're home. Oh, 100%. So but, I, I love that myself. But meanwhile, while this is going on, you're in England, where after your hit musical duo, Peter and Gordon, broke up, you yep. became the head of A&R at Beatles record label, Apple, yes. like we yes. talked about. Yep. And that same year, you discovered and produced the first American-signed artist, James Taylor. The first signed artist at all. At, at all, yep. which is great. Yep. There you go, America. <clears throat> USA, breaking in. All right. The next one on this uh, record is the one that stuck out to me immediately years ago. It's My Sweet Lord, the first single from the album, and the first Beatles solo to go number one. It was originally written in 1969 while George was playing shows with rock and soul group Delaney and Bob and Friends, and whose keyboardist was later Beatles contributor Billy Preston. Uh, Peter, play 308. The only way to describe this song is is breathtaking. Like this yeah. this song makes me want to cut my hair except for like a long ponytail, put on an off orange robe, give up all my worldly possessions and hand out pamphlets at the airport. That's what yep. I feel when I hear this. You, you become even more annoying than you've managed so far. It's, be, it's the perfect job Ooh, for you. Sweet burn. Sweet burn. George was trying to write a gospel song like the Edwins Hawkins singers. Oh, oh happy day. day. Yes. Yep. But using and using the repeated mantras of his <clears throat> Hare Krishna faith. However, though, and you probably know this, the copyright holders of the Chiffon's 1963 yeah, hit, He's So Fine, yeah. sued over similarities. Uh, Peter, play a little bit of He's So Fine. He's so fine. So the lawsuit went on for years until 76 when George was eventually found guilty of subconscious plagiarism. What a weird <laughs> judge decree. Well, it means that, you know, that you remember it, but you don't, you didn't, you weren't consciously copying it, but that's, but you must, I mean, there's yeah. no question he heard the record and liked it. As we a, all as, did. As a know. comic, as a comic that's happened uh, to me, it's just like you, you just, you, you, you hear so many jokes and then next thing you know, you write a premise and somebody's like, well, what was that? Exactly. Uh, well, comics think they all steal from each other all the time. Oh, and, they, and they do. Yeah, yeah. we do. <laughs> we all steal. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm stealing from your wallet right now. Uh. I'm just taking, <laughs> taking pounds out. Uh, he was ordered to pay a huge sum. Even then, the case wasn't completely settled until 1993. I, I just got to ask this. Have you ever talked to George about that lawsuit no, in his feelings about it? No, I have not. It? I have not. I mean, I like both records. I they, There's a similarity. There's no question. Um, but it, this whole business, you know, it, it continues to this day. It goes on all the time, and it's it gets very weird. I mean, there was the, uh, what was it, the, the whole Robin Thicke, um, oh, uh, you know, got got to give it up uh, from from Marvin Gaye. From Marvin Gaye, and, yeah. and they talked about in public how they they took the groove from this Marvin Gaye record they all loved, you know, because they thought it was so cool, and it was meant as like an homage to the genius of Marvin Gaye. And suddenly they went, oh, you know, give us tons of money, yeah, and and they lost that one. And Ned Sheeran's got a couple going on, and it's it's become all the rage. Of course, people do copy subconsciously and consciously, you know. Um, 
as for my atheist self, I think Do Lang Do Lang is a better lyric than Hare Krishna, but that, <laughs> but that's just me. I love that. All right. I, I joined the Do Lang Do Lang cult. I mean, I'm not sure what kind of robes we, we just, wear. We but. just hang out at a, Rol, at a Ralph's uh, supermarket and, there you and go. just help people and, bag their and tell groceries. them we don't believe in anything. Yeah. And, you know, All ro- right. robes optional. All right. Next one, next one is Wawa. This was the first song recorded for this album. Uh, my favorite thing about this song is how it just keeps building. So, uh, Peter, play it uh, 422 when it's at full capacity. So this uh, is named after the guitar effect foot pedal. Yeah. But in this song, it means headache. So legend has it that George wrote this after walking out of the Let It Be sessions. Uh, He was feeling undervalued and pushed around by Paul, which you can actually see in the Beatles anthology. There's that famous scene where George is sitting there like, I I don't have to play. I'll I'll play whatever you want me to play. And it's so, like, you you, you just blow it off while you're seeing it there. And now years later, especially after hearing this, it's like, wow, how much weight was on that? Yeah, we're going to learn a lot when the Peter Jackson new version is you know Ooh. you know peter jackson's directing the new let it be and he's got huge amounts of amazing footage oh i can't wait for that i had no idea about that but let me oh ask yeah you. no it's a big thing and he's it's he's devoted the next couple of years to it and then there's there's a 10 or 15 minutes that, that you know there's some bits of people have actually seen and it's colossally good and it gives you a whole other impression of it's gonna sessions. be weird when and then you're like why are the beatles performing in mordor <laughs> Thank you. I got a giggle out of you. That's all I care about. So I told the, you I'm very polite. <laughs> so the Beatles uh, had this toxic work environment that led to him temporarily quitting in January of 69. Were you ever present for one of the really bad fights between the Beatles? Uh, not quite. Um, uh, no, but we were aware of them. I mean, there were times when there was one particular occasion when, when uh, you know, we, they they there was some big meeting going on that that, that Neil Aspinall and Peter Brown and stuff we, we were in. I was in the beginning of it and then I left. But eventually, the four Beatles wanted to be to be alone in the meeting room. We did hear massively raised voices and yelling and it was actually George who came storming out first, slamming the door. So, yeah, things were things were intense. Any idea of what they were fighting over? Not at all. Not at all? And I don't think it really matters. You know, we all know that later on, you know, after... after after the divorce or the band breakup or whatever the hell's going on, we say, well, what exactly are you arguing about? Usually people go, I don't precisely remember. You know, but yeah. at the point is you grab onto something and make that, you know, why the other person's a completely blithering idiot and, you know, you despise them. And once you get to that stage, you know, the marriage or the band is over. A hundred percent. And and that kind of leads us into the next track, which is uh, uh, properly titled, Isn't It a Pity, version one. Uh, Peter, play 302. <laughs> This has a real Beatles feel to it, you know? It does. It, yeah. it has the Lennon descending piano, and it also has this this big Paul McCartney, Hey Jude type ending that just keeps going and going. And it's like, I didn't want this song to end. Uh, I love this version. 
And a lot uh, of cool slide guitar in there too. Very cool. I mean, cool George slide became guitar. a master of the slide guitar. He discovered it, I think, quite late on. We know? we were just listening to the last record we just did was Big Star number one record, uh-huh. and there's like a couple songs in there that you're like, oh, they're biting off George's slide. Oh, like right. I feel it, because <laughs> uh, they were so in love with the Beatles, Chris yeah. Bell and Alex mm. Shilton. Now, according to George, this song is just an observation of how society and myself were or are. We take each other for granted and forget to give back. Uh, I This song just gets me in the squiggles every time. Also, there's 17 more versions of this song on the record, so we're going to skip 14 of them. Okay. Bring us to the next one, What is Life? Uh, most people might remember this next one being played during Ray Liotta's paranoid cocaine meatball-making FBI surveillancing scene in Goodfellas. Kick it, Peter! Makes you want to just snort an eight ball and make well, it some... does. There's something about fuzz tone guitars and cocaine that go very well together. Just, I just want to. I'm guessing. Put some coke up my nose and make some manicotti. That's all I feel like doing. Yep. This was the second single. You wouldn't eat the manicotti. No, you couldn't. You were all we're high on coke. We'd make it full of energy. We'd be trying to start a business together, talking about RoboCop. That's what we'd be doing. So this was the second single, and it was a top ten hit all over the world. This was written quickly in '69 during the Beatles' Abbey Road album period for Billy Preston's album "That's the Way God Planned It" that George was co-producing, but then he decided he wanted to hold on to it. Uh, it's yes, either, I remember when George was doing that album. So maybe I was there then. I don't know. It gets confusing. Gets but confusing. I, do, I do remember when George was producing that. Yes. Okay. Well, here's the thing. Either this song is about a woman or God or maybe both. Any idea? No. Perfect. Sorry. No. I never try to guess what lyrics are about. If you do guess, you're usually wrong. Unless you know, it happens to be something where the, the songwriter did actually tell me. But I usually don't ask. and and Because uh, the answer is usually... a. a astonishing you know sometimes it's not what you think at all you know with some songwriters it's it's about a number of things at the same time i mean uh with with some of the most brilliant songwriters, Joni mitchell you know i've I've in the past talked to her about what certain songs are about and the explanation can be like hours and hours you know long a long night explaining one song because oh this line was about this person she met and this thing that happened then but the other lines about somebody so yeah it's not even a consistent single meaning song and and you know which is one of the reasons she's such a genius so yeah it it can get it can be surprising it can be carla bonoff wrote a song um uh called goodbye old friend i think or something like that a beautiful song and it became uh a a song that was that was played a lot at funerals, and especially for some reason it caught on in, in during the ghastly um, HIV AIDS epidemic when yeah. a lot of people were dying. There were funerals all the time, and it was the song people used all the time. And there was a point where she was kind of thinking, "I better not tell anyone that it was about my cat dying." <laughs> because <laughs> she's like this, because, this one's about Mookie Mookie died Mr. Flufflesworth it didn't mean it didn't make the song any less meaningful yeah but she suddenly realized well that you know then people might go oh well, that's weird you know yeah <laughs> and, oh I love that and you know so sometimes the meaning of a song changes and yet that's why you know the, the meaning of the song when sung at those funerals was a whole other meaning and a very profound and extremely serious one and that happens with songs that the meanings changed by what the singer means and what the, and also by what the listener hears and imagines when they listen to it you know? yeah. so i'm always reluctant to talk about the meaning of songs because 
who knows, you know. And some, some, some songwriters have said that same thing. Well, I thought it was about this, but now I'm learning from the listening public. It's actually about that, you know, and that maybe is more important and better. That's what I love about George's songs is that you don't have to know. You just feel it. And that's all that matters. Right. And my point is sometimes it's better not to know. Or if, exactly. if you think you know, then you're right. Yeah. You know, if, so this is what the song means. Okay. You know, uh, good. <laughs> all right. Um, all right. The next one's uh, It's Not For You. I love this song. Me too. But since it was a Bob Dylan cover, we are skipping it. Okay. Because that then brings us to Behind That Locked Door, just a very pretty country waltz. Which I don't remember at all. Much, We're about but, to play it. But good. it's got, but, but, but hold on, Peter. It's got a little touch of Hawaii. Makaleka Huki playing Peter. Playing the pedal steel was who? Pete Drake. Pete Drake. He's, it's incredible. That, he's, he's famous. Absolutely. One okay, of the best. So, Nashville-based, brilliant steel player. Well, I now I'm he's, finding he's, out about he's him. He's the man. You, or one of the men. You, See, pedal steel is an instrument that is very specific. Yeah. It's also one of the only instruments... This is digression, but I no, always take digress. Me. It's the only instrument... One of the only instruments, I think, where... Nobody, they can never play each other's. In other words, if if a pedal steel player walks in a room and someone else, and someone says, "Oh, you can use mine," no, you can't, because the way you set up the the pedals on the floor and the levers you work with your knees is done however you want it. In other words, you set it up yourself. It takes these strings up a half step, takes these strings down, whatever it does is different in every case. Yeah. So so it's not like a piano or a guitar where you can pick someone else's up. And play For sure. It. It's a very idiosyncratic in particular and eccentric instrument and very beautiful. I use pedal steel a lot on a lot of the Linda Ronset records I did and I love it. What I think that's what I think just takes this this just simple song and just puts so much depth to yeah, it. Yeah, and it's it's it is more country than Hawaii. Yeah, I mean, yeah, but you can Hawaii hear Hawaii's more lap steel. For sure. But but you, can, but you can country. hear why I would say that. Oh, yes, it does yes. have that does have that vibe. Now, this song was yes. written in 69 mm. as a note of encouragement. I love this story so much. It was written as a note of encouragement for Bob Dylan, who was about to make a comeback at the Isle of Wight Festival after three years in almost total seclusion with his family. That was after the motorcycle crash or something, right? Was that it? That period? I think maybe. I, I think so, I think it yeah. Was. Um, yeah, and then they, they went to the Isle of Wight Festival. So, some Beatles went, didn't they? Yeah, I think George. George definitely did because, uh, you know, I think he probably was like had yeah. to be there to support his buddy. Yeah, I think a couple of them went, and it was supposed to be the, the classic Isle of Wight festival. People still talk about that one being the greatest. Oh God! I never went to Isle of Wight myself at all. Really? You were uh, you were a Lollapalooza guy, weren't you? No, I went. I, I was. I was. <laughs> he said, "Whatever." He's like, "I'm a big Ozfest fan." No, I went to Woodstock. <laughs> and was, the Gathering of the Juggalos. I was at Woodstock. Were uh, you? Yeah, but uh, and I, I, yeah, but no, I haven't been to. Uh, haven't been to Ozfest, I must admit. <laughs> You're not missing anything, bro. Well, I, I like Sharon. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind. Uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little a little taste of it, right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick. And usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work. But we talk about decidedly not so grown up things like hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love, or hate. 
Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that that uh, has impacted your life, uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers. Think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Axe Grind podcast. Hey everyone, this is Tuck from Fit for a King in Off-Road Minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Moths to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media. All right, moving on, uh, Let It Down. George wrote this in 68 and tried to get it on Let It Be, but again was turned down, which is fucked because this song bangs with a side of Girl, Let Me Touch Your Booty. Play the chorus. Let it down. I know we played the chorus, but this is actually a very sensual, sexual love and lust song. I mean, just going by some of these these lyrics, let it down, let your hair hang all around me, let it down, let your love flow and astound me. Uh, and I love so so much the quiet verse into the pounding chorus. I mean, it's it's and I, I hate to say it, it's it's so like you could see like how Nirvana copied this we just did in euro and it's it's just incredible and it's such a a sensual song for someone like george who you like we said is the quiet one and and seemed kind of inhibited i guess you know just on the surface at least yeah i i I wouldn't know but uh yeah it's a good song it's a great song there's been a lot of talk about george's marriage and relationship with patty boyd and how she ended up with his best friend eric clapton but also, and we did a little bit of research, uh, Morty found out George was no angel and had many affairs, including some with exes of Eric as well. Um, well, what do you know? What do you Rock know? Rock and roll bands have affairs with other women than their wives. It's oh, a shocking it's revelation. shocking. Oh. This will change the music business forever. <laughs> How no, I mean, If you're a Beatle, you know, what are you going to do? You kind of just, you, you know, you can't turn them all away. Oh, you know? <laughs> God, no. I can imagine. Good God. You're young. You're a beetle. You know, it's it's what it's what you do. It is what you do. All right. Run of the mill. This one was inspired by the band and written after the bummed out get back sessions. Mm-hmm. It reflected George's unhappiness with how running Apple Records put a strain on their friendships and partnerships, especially with Paul. And, also, and I said, let me interrupt with one please, thing. No, which please. It wasn't just Apple Records. It was actually when Apple went beyond records. I, I occasionally speak in defense of Apple Records because Apple Records did at least have some success. You know, James Taylor, Mary Hopkin, Jackie Lomax, the Ivies who became Badfinger. We, we sold some records, had some hits. Um, so, but when, uh, because the Beatles knew what they were doing. You know, when we, I would have A&R meetings once a week with as many Beatles as showed up and they knew what they were talking about. When they got into movies, let alone clothing and electronics and all that other stuff, that's when things started to really get bizarre. Get bizarre. Because, you know, they didn't know what they were doing. Yeah. And, and uh, Magic Alex was, you know, a fraud and, and the, all things just got downright dicey. And it was all of that that made them think they needed an Alan Klein type figure to come in and be rough and tough and, and sort it all out. 
But you also had uh, some unhappiness at Apple Records. And like you said, you left to come to America to manage and continue to produce. James, uh, after his Apple debut, didn't find an audience. Were you supported in your decision or was there hard feelings? Didn't seem to be any hard feelings because Paul and I remained friends. Um, I didn't. I saw less of the other Beatles after that time. Um, these days I see more Ringo than any of the others because he's here, you know. Um, but... No, there, were, there, there did not appear to be any hard feelings. And and there were no, you know, despite the fact that James was theoretically still under contract to this label that was in chaos and, and in legal straits, we never got sued or anything. And I've read that, that that was actually thanks to George, that he was one of the people saying to Alan Klein, no, whatever else happens, that's the kind of label we saw, said we would never be, you know, if if we didn't get the job done and, he's, and the artist has left, so be it. Yeah. So if then if that's true, I've always, I would George a great debt of gratitude, but and I've read that that it was primarily him who said that. No, I I believe it. A very spiritual guy. Yeah. You know, very you know mm. sees things pragmatically. Uh, that leads us to our next song, "Beware of Darkness," which is a great song. I think this may be my favorite song. Of the really, yeah, I like Ooh. this song a lot. Play the first verse. It's very good. Watch out now. Take a Curious chord changes that are really excellent. Uh, this song was influenced by the teachings of the Radha Krishna Temple. Its advice is stay away from illusions, material things, corrupting influencers, which I understand because social media influencers, I hate all of you, and negative thoughts on the way to spiritual enlightenment and the true purpose of light. Uh, Peter, I'm just going to let you know right now, I am enlightened, even though you probably don't think so. No, I'm sure you are. I am I, I, so I've managed to avoid it so far myself. You don't see my aura glow? I, I, I'm, I'm not what, good My at, wavelength? I'm not good at auras, no. <laughs> just go ahead. Just go ahead. Just feel, feel the aura, bro. I'll take it's your aura. What, what color is your aura? It's, you know, it's like a teal. Okay. I'm a teal, like a Charlotte Hornet teal. There you go. Um, let me ask you this. How have you stayed positive about music after all these years, and what currently excites you about it? Oh, discovering new new people who are great, and there's so many of them. You know, uh, I I've, I've I vigorously reject the you know oh they don't write music as good as they did back in our day. You know all that crap that I hear all the time. Um, as I go out and do shows, you know, which I do a lot of, and talk to the, the I hear that from the audience a lot, and I keep having to explain. Listen, you know, this is selective memory. You, you're remembering all the great music from the '60s. You know, there was tons of really crappy Crap. music, and we <laughs> we we've, we swept that away. We don't remember it, you know. Yeah. And and it's the same now. You know, we will remember. You know, uh, um, Ed Sheeran. We will remember Billie Eilish. We won't remember all the stuff that you know is is should be forgotten. Oh, I hate to say and, it, dude, but Lil Uzi Vert is engraved in my brain, unfortunately. Which one? Lil Uzi, Lil oh, Uzi. Friend. Oh yeah, you don't know Lil Uzi? I don't think I do. You, you should, you should book a uh, like a, a dual headlining. I've tour seen with, the name, but with no, I... James Taylor, Lil Uzi Vert, throw Migos in there, and then have Linda Ronstadt come out and do a duet with all three of them. That would be the shit, bro. Yeah, that would be great. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm in. All right, Apple Scruffs. Yeah, which uh, I think I have. I need medication for. Um, George hated fan worship. But like the other Beatles, he had a soft spot for the hardcore, longtime Beatles fans who basically lived outside of their studios and offices, well past Beatlemania. You know, they, they were nice. 
Um, they knew everybody by name. They knew the whole staff of the building, you know. And George uh, liked them. He named them the Apple Yeah, Scruffs. I mean, dude, he not only did he name them the Apple Scruffs, which, by the way, sounds like a diss from the movie The Sandlot. I don't know if you ever seen that where no. he's like, "You cake eating apple scruff." Oh. It's just that's how I. That's all I heard. But this is a beautiful Bob Dylan inspired tribute song. Yes. Um. So you, you were talking about the relationship. We don't need to play the track. But what was your relationship with the Apple Scruffs? I mean, did you have any interaction? You said they yeah, seemed nice. Yeah. I mean, you'd, if you boy, they, they were there when you arrived at work. You'd say good morning and you'd say goodbye when you left. I mean, they, they were just a fixture of the of the doorstep. They were there a lot. Were you, were you like stepping funny. over them? Like no, like, they were just milling about. You know. Um. Weren't that many smoking of them. pot or just hanging? No, no just hanging, talking. Um, yeah, I mean they, they obviously came and went, but there were there were usually a few of them floating about, and they they were nice. And one of them's around. I got an email or letter or something from her the other day saying, you know, you wouldn't remember me, but I was I was a scruff. Um, and uh, <laughs> they were they were nice. I was Fans uh, I usually was, are. You know, I was especially, the sec- especially when they're on their own. It was when they got into this crowd mania thing. Yeah. As you know, in large groups, the weird things happen to people, and and so that cra- the crazy stuff when they'd be you know rocking the limo and oh, or rushing the door. That would be, trying, yeah. It was that was peculiar, and and there is something that happens, you know, when they get into a large group. Some it's you know that whole Beatlemania, which all of us, of course of course, experienced to a much lesser degree. But once the Beatles established the template, that this is how it's done, you know, all of us in the, were part of the British invasion, every concert was screaming from beginning to end. They chased you. But if they caught you, they didn't know what to do. I mean, it was, <laughs> just, it, it was started just tickling you. <laughs> well, it was... It, <laughs> no, it's real, I'll tell you the... the I can the, imagine you giggling, getting tickled by a scruff. Here's the most psychologically <laughs> interesting moment I remember. Um... Because the other thing was the police at all these gigs um, would always go, don't worry, we can handle it. It's fine. We've done this before. It's just a few girls and nothing to worry about. Yeah. And they immediately get overcome by these hordes of crazed women and who just knock the police out of the way. Um, we did a gig once, an outdoor gig. We were playing on this little outdoor stage in sort of the corner of a baseball field. And again, the police said, oh, don't worry. We, you know, and they said, no, they, well, these, these British acts, things get pretty unruly. But anyway, so... We, pl- we started playing. The, these screaming girls all broke through the little police cordon with no trouble whatsoever, and they were all charging across the baseball field, which was upsetting everybody because it was going to damage the precious yeah. turf or whatever, and, and towards the stage. And so the police came and said, you have to get off the stage, run for the dressing room. So I get off. I jump off the stage. As I jump, my glasses fall down on the ground. <gasps> so I reach down, pick them up, and carry on running. I look back. The lead girl in this maniacal pack of women has is stopped where my glasses fell and is pulling the grass up from the ground where they fell and eating it. Oh my god. And I went, That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> I mean I mean this one is speechless. What does that mean, you know? All right. Ballad of Sir Frankie Crisp, Let It Roll, which uh I think is my new favorite song on this album. Uh, because of this section we're about to play. Play 211. So this was dedicated to the eccentric 19th century lawyer and original owner of Friar Park, 
the sprawling and unique mansion that George bought, renovated, and moved into in 1970. And it's essentially a travelogue through the property. I just think the song is so beautiful. Yep, as is the house. Really? Yeah. You've been there? Oh, yeah, many times. Really? Yeah. You ever done some coke and made manicotti there? That was little, little squiggly Dan, <laughs> little squiggly Dan. No, I've, I've been there a couple of times back in the day, and and to visit Olivia more recently. Oh, that's great. All right, well, let's it's speak. It's an amazing house, and and now it's just, you know, when you bought it, it was a wreck, but um, he, she's made it perfect. Olivia's done an incredible job. I want to ask you a question. Speaking of eccentric and fascinating people like Sir Frankie Crisp, in the early two thousands, you produced a live record for probably one of the greatest comedic minds of all time Robin Williams yes how did that come about and what was that like Robin and I uh, uh, were great friends um, m- my wife actually knew Robin before I did and and uh, he and I hit it off and, and became very close friends and and so when he was doing this album he asked me if I would like to help him with it so I um, basically consisted of you know spending three weeks on the road and and making notes of every night, you know, which bits worked well, particular nights, and what th- things I thought could be tightened up or changed. And and Robin and his manager and I and and his wife Marsha at the time and would talk about you know what we might try differently in the shows themselves. But in the meantime, I was accumulating this treasure trove of all the great bits on on tape, as it were. I use the word tape metaphorically. <laughs> I so. still say tape. Um, no, keep saying tape. Exactly. Don't let that die. Exactly. Um, and so that's what it was, and and then I I went spent quite a while, you know, working on it, and uh, and Robin liked the result, so yeah, that was when we won the Grammy for comedy album of the year, not a Grammy I've expected to to have in my collection, which was very exciting. That is so cool, that is so cool. All right, uh, moving on to the next song that makes me so happy, "Awaiting on You All." Peter, play the first verse. Don't need a This is just a joyful, reverb-drenched gospel song about chanting your chosen spiritual God's name to cleanse your soul independent of organized Western religion. And this is what makes the song cool and George cool. If you think George is being all peace and love on this, listen to the lyrics on parts of the last verse and chorus because he takes aim at Catholicism, which George was raised in, and it's ties to materialism. All right, so these are the lyrics I pulled. You don't need no church house. You don't need no temple. You don't need no rosary beads or them books to read to see that you have fallen. And then this is the real squiggly diggly. He says, and while the Pope owns 51% of General Motors and the stock exchange is the only thing he's qualified to quote us, shots fired from the nice beetle. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Any thoughts on that? Uh, I, it's a good lyric. I think it's terrific and I agree with every word of it. Yeah. All right. Moving on. To all things must pass. Peter, uh, play minute 30. It's not always gonna be this great. This one gets me in my chunk chunks. So this was inspired by the weight by the band. It was originally demoed in 69 on the same day as something. And it addresses the themes of the mortality of everything Many Beatles fans took this to be advice for dealing with their breakup. Uh, and like you said earlier, you know, 
and we said actually is that you know any of these can be interpreted as life death love whatever but and that's why i think i love this song so much because it could be about it can i mean from, from a scientific point of view it's a celebration of entropy you know, I, all yeah things will pass i said that's, i said this could be about the food you've you've eaten you yes. know what i mean all things will pass that's true too hey this is steve Choi, host of the musicians guild podcast part of the sound talent media podcast network Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. In retrospect, all the fans know the retold stories of when each Beatle wanted to leave the band, but when did you first know that the dream was over? I think it was very gradual. I mean, I do remember Paul telling me of the time that Ringo said he didn't want to be in the band anymore. And I think that might have been the first time. That was around the because Maharishi time, right? Because that, that, that's at least what I saw in the anthology. It could anthology. be. Yeah, I don't, I'm, as I say, I'm not too good at remembering dates or chronology. But, but it was a time when I think he and Paul and John were arguing a lot. And the last thing they expected was for Ringo to, Ringo to go, be the one. Yeah, kind of go, you know what? I don't think I want to be in this band anymore. It's no fun kind of thing. Um, and I think that brought them up short in a big way and probably put off the breakup of the Beatles for for a bit you know because they went well that's not good if we if we've made it no fun for Ringo then what's the point yeah you know? um and uh but I think as you know was, I believe it was John who finally said you know I'm definitely quitting the band goodbye next song I dig love uh this John Lennon-esque song started as an exercise for George to practice his slide guitar technique and it sounds that way until the chorus Peter play 114 What's funny about this song is this, this is just straight up lustful. It's another one of those songs that you don't expect out of George. And it kind of does make sense because in the early 60s, the Beatles were these wild punk kids in Hamburg, Germany. George, of course, was the youngest. And then they become these huge stars and got all married up. And then they stopped touring. So while everyone was looking at George like he was this abstinent Eastern swami on a hill, like he was going on the road with Delaney and Bonnie and friends, and he took full advantage of that groupie schloopy. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So I, I, I have some idea of what you mean. Yes. <laughs> groupie schloopy. I was on the road a lot myself in the sixties. Really? Yeah. You, you do you get a little bit of that that groupie schloopy? It seems possible. Ooh, shugga duggy quack quack. All right. I'm just saying gibberish at this point. All right, uh, Art of Dying, uh, play a minute 37. I love this song. This song doesn't, I don't know if it really, I'm not going to say it does or does not fit with this record, but after I found out this, it kind of made sense that Lennon and Harrison were dosed by LSD by their dentist in Los Angeles in February of 65. And that was a big change that happened to their outlooks and to their songwriting. I feel like a little bit of this is from that. But this song is about trying to die correctly to move on to the next plane of existence and avoid being reincarnated as another earthbound creature. Yeah. Uh, now we've come to a song that I was listening to last night. It just, it just crushed me. Isn't it a pity? Version two, just a slower, shorter, and more intimate version than the first one, and removes most of the overt Beatle musical styles. It also has probably one of my favorite parts on the entire record. Uh, Peter, play two fifteen. 
that movement and just even the way his voice sounds, it just has a different feel that I feel, you know, like I said, I lost my best friend. That's the reason that I'm doing this podcast. And when I was listening to this last night, he was in the room with me. It was like, Mm -hmm. I felt it. Uh, it, it it just was, it was palpable. Um, now I want to ask you this, uh, when did you first make a conscious effort to step out of the shadow of the Beatles? I didn't really think of it in that way. I mean, I suppose, uh, I suppose, yeah, maybe from the beginning the, there was a Beatles shadow there because obviously Peter and Gordon's first hit was the song that Paul McCartney wrote. So that maybe put us in their shadow. And I suppose you could say that when Peter and Gordon were lucky enough to continue to have hits, even that they didn't write, uh, maybe that was us stepping out of the shadows. But I think, I mean, each, my whole career has been a series of, surprising steps in a way I, yeah. you know uh, when i was a philosophy student at london university i wasn't expecting a year later to be a pop star with who's your favorite philosopher um wittgenstein okay right well actually i would I'm say i'm a kierkegaard dude but i you would know. say i would say bertrand russell but he's way out of, of fashion these uh, days. you know but i like i like john locke too i love social contract stuff locke that's always good, good. Locke locke's always good. good we're yeah. gonna have a philosophy jam session we'll talk about some, some descartes baby we'll, absolutely we'll get in there some voltaire yeah um yeah but i i think there is you know you you were making these steps to uh, yeah no I, get anyway, out. where i was i yeah the, the the i suppose when i started producing records you know uh uh that was the first stepping away completely from the Beatles because obviously the Beatles had something to do with Peter and Gordon's success initially Paul wrote us that amazing song or gave us that amazing song that already existed and uh, and when I decided to become a record producer that was a very conscious ambition on my part Yeah, though Paul helped uh, actually oddly enough the very first record I ever produced um, which was a uh, by a guy called Paul Jones do you remember Paul Jones he was the lead Jones. singer of Manfred Mann back in the you know there she, she was, was, just a walking down the street singing. That was Paul Jones, brilliant singer, one of the best harmonica players in the world. Um, I owe him a debt because he was the first person to say, I'd like you to produce some tracks with me because nowadays you can prove your ability as a record producer by doing something on your laptop that will blow everyone's socks off. Oh, yeah. Back then, unless you could get in a studio with some musicians, you, it was all talk. Yeah. Um, so, and the first track I ever did was with this guy Paul Jones and I wanted to make sure I had a really killer rhythm section for that for the for the tracking date so I had Nicky Hopkins on piano um, Paul Samuel Smith on bass who was the bass player in the Yardbirds and also went on to produce Carly Simon and Cat Stevens and uh, Jeff Beck on guitar oh wow and Paul McCartney on drums oh my god it's a good rhythm section and <laughs> a good a, and a good record cra- yeah you think yeah that is incredible all right last song on the record so i never quite escaped paul's influence i, I mean when i produced but, but that's but that's like the, i mean if there's anybody who's who's influence you, you don't escape that's the person yeah and then of course when i did james's album as we talked about paul oh. came and played it on the on carolina and in my mind who's like i just would i just want to go through your phone and see the numbers that you have in there because i bet it's just you probably have voltaire in there Oh, definitely, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, uh, only only a street address, not a. Uh, you know, yeah, he's old school. Yeah, he's a male I to, guy. I have to ride to Voltaire yeah. with a quill and everything. Yeah. All right, last song on the record because we're skipping all the jams. Uh, Hear me, Lord. To end the record's main group of songs is the most overtly religious song of them all. It's really just a long gospel prayer for forgiveness, help, and guidance, and play the best part, which is the ending four nineteen. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,
I, I want to know this because you've met so many amazing people and you've worked with so many just great minds and very spiritually in touch people. What is the best advice or guidance you ever got? Oh, that I ever got. Um, it's usually, usually I'm asked, what do you tell people who want to, you know, but uh, I, 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 gosh, I'm trying to think of advice that I've actually followed and used and then <laughs> that really did. The curveball. I gave you the curveball. I mean, the, you the, did, the you did, you did. Um, I can't think of any off the top of my head. Well, what's the best advice you give? Well, I think when people, usually it's a question of, you know, in nowadays, you know, it's it's a list of, you know, should I do this? Should I do that? You know, should I be looking for a manager? Should I be looking for an agent? Should I get my music up on iTunes? Should I write songs for other people instead of doing them myself? And the answer is yes to all, to of, all it. of it. To yeah. all of it. You know, if you, 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 you know, if somebody else, because if, some people screw up and say, you know, you've written a really cool song and you think you're saving it for when you get a record deal and suddenly, you know, Britney Spears wants to do it. You say yes. You know, you of don't course. get all protective. If you're that good, you write another one. A hundred percent. And and the same. You know, when they ask you, should I play this gig? I'm not sure my music will fit in with this band they've asked me to open for. Doesn't matter. If you're good, even if the you know the back half of the house isn't listening, if the first three rows are listening and deciding you're really good, and they're going to go online afterwards and check you out, that's why you did the gig. Oh, you know, for so sure. it's yes to everything. It's create. It's create. Yeah. Make, don't wait for other people to help you. Just do it. Yeah, exactly. All right, you want to hear some, get, do some facts and get out of here? Yeah, sure. Let's hear some facts, facts, and facts, and facts. All right. So George brought Billy Preston in to play keys with the Beatles in 1969. In return, he co-produced his 1970 album, Encouraging Words, for their Apple Records label. As Billy helped him work on My Sweet Lord, he let him record it first along with the track title, and the Beatles then unreleased I've Got a Feeling. It came out two months earlier than this album. As someone who has been personally given unreleased Beatles songs by a Beatle to record, if Paul or anyone ever played you one of their new songs and you thought it was awful, would or could you say anything? I'm very glad that never happened, so I never had to make that decision. Um, <laughs> no, I, I, I never, they never played me a bad song. It, it would have been true. It really was like that. Everything they were bringing well, I didn't, was just... I mean, to us, there were only a couple of songs involved. As you probably know, World Without Love itself was a leftover, unfinished song that they were not going to do, that Paul had abandoned because John didn't like it. So. Yeah. Um, and then he wrote a couple specifically for us, Nobody I Know and I Don't Want to See You Again and Woman. Um, and they were all three, luckily, were great. Um, I mean, it's, it's interesting you mention that, only because people question people often ask me, is well, how did you get all those great songs out of the Beatles? And it that shows a, a central misunderstanding of how what they saw the role of a songwriter as being. They took their songwriting careers seriously. It was a separate career from being a Beatle. Indeed, one of the questions we all got asked in interviews back in the sixties was, "What are you going to do with this? Is all over?" Because it was an absolute conviction that a career as a pop star was two years max, you know, and then you'd go back to being a milkman or whatever you were. So they would actually answer that question and did. We will be songwriters. Their heroes were not just Elvis and Eddie Cochran. They were Lieber and Stoller, Goffin and King, Man and Wild. They, you know, they thought that was, a, in a way, a more longer-lasting profession. So when we had a big hit with World Without Love, which was the accidental leftover song that we got, and that was a, a story. But after that, of course, 
all the great songwriters were starting to write songs for us. That's what happens when you have a big hit, you know. Yeah. And including, luckily, Paul McCartney, and luckier still, his was the best. He wrote Nobody I Know to be our follow-up, finished with a bridge, ready to go. Yeah. And But that wasn't, we didn't have to go begging. That was what songwriters do, you know, yeah. and, and we're very glad he did because it was great. What What songs were brought to you before they were recorded by Paul and John? Like, what do you remember that really just well, it, this stuck out? That you oh, were well, like, the one that stuck, shit. Oh, well, the one that stuck out was, um, you know, in, in, our, in that house, there was a small music room in the basement. My mother was a professional musician, a classical oh, cool. musician. Yeah. She was an oboe player. Indeed, in one of the complex ironies and coincidences, one of the weirdest things is that among her oboe pupils, long before any of this happened, was George Martin. Oh, no weird. shit. Very weird. But anyway, that's odd. But no, there was a basement music room in our house in Wimpole Street, and um, which my mother occasionally used to give private lessons, but increasingly didn't because she was oboe professor at the Royal Academy of Music up the road. And she'd said to Paul, if you want, ever want to use a piano, you can use that room. And there was that particular day, quite soon after he'd moved in, when John Lennon came over, who by this point I'd also got to know, and and the two of them went down to this music room, interestingly, with no guitars, just uh, the piano that was down there. And they were down there for two or three hours, and then Paul called up the stairs. I was in my bedroom upstairs and asked if I wanted to come down and hear the song they had just finished. So I came down. It's a small room, small upright piano, a music stand, and a two-person sofa. So I sat on the sofa, and they sat side by side on the piano bench, both playing piano, and hammered out this brand-new song called I Want to Hold Your Hand and asked me what I thought. So that I and you were like, it's garbage. It's that, not going anywhere. That I do. Let's remember. get George Martin on hobo. That's not hobo on hobo. Right. And the hobo. I, I mean, this. What What are your thoughts hearing that for the first time? You You tell them it's great. And 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 the, the perhaps the giveaway is what you do. You find yourself doing automatically is asking them to play it again. Mm. And that, of course, when you know you got a hit, and <laughs> and equally convincing is the fact that they were delighted to play it again. Oh, they they, were, they knew it was special. Yeah. So it's just a but, twinkle in their eye, I, and just and like that an was, energy that was just. Yeah. Oh. And you kind of went. I did think at that point, this I will I will remember, remember this. I think being the first person to ever hear that song will turn out. To oh my a, god! A, a curious. I am. I just a curious honor. Peter, I, I can't thank you enough for taking time out to, to sit down and talk to no, me. No, it's been good. This was just such an honor. Thank oh, you. Oh, my pleasure. I told you guys this was a banger of an episode. To find out more about Peter Asher and find out about his future appearances, go to his Facebook page, at Peter Asher, and make sure you guys grab a copy of his book, The Beatles from A to Z. Please subscribe on Spotify to The 500. Do it immediately. Pause this, subscribe, come back, because I got to tell you about this. Now, we just listened to George Harrison from 1970. This week, Little Matty Pinfield, our music director, selected Jim James. You might know Jim James as being the front man of My Morning Jacket. We covered the record Zed on this list. He is a solo artist as well and basically made numerous EPs, including one fully comprised of George Harrison covers. Check out My Morning Jacket's fan favorite, One Big Holiday, on Spotify. That is our music of the week. Check out the link at the500podcast.com. And if you're in a band and you want your music played 
on the 500 website and we'll talk about it and do all that goodly goodly stuff I want you guys to send your music to 500podcast at gmail.com tell me the album and the artist that influenced you and we'll make sure it gets up there guys next week is Brian Eno week with his 1973 album Here Come the Wolm Jets you've got some homework to do do stay fleecy listen on Spotify and a doodle a doodle This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today, such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts. And new episodes come out every Monday. Hi, this is Chad Nicefield. And this is Justin Press. We're the host of Making Waves, the Shiprock Podcast, a part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. We're inviting you to sail away with us on an epic journey in musical enlightenment. Every week, we bring you only the best artists in rock music and discuss everything from the cruise to the stage to the saga of being a professional recording artist. We'll have lots of special guests along the way, so tune in every week. Your stateroom is available every Monday morning, so welcome aboard. Next Chapter Podcasts.